It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Matea Roach, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and getting back to work. Today on the show, the people, united, will never be defeated. Most of Canada's federal workers have reached a tentative agreement after striking, and many went back to work on Monday. Hashtag bare minimum Monday, anyone? And new research shows that police-involved deaths are still on the rise in Canada. We have a lot of follow-up questions. Joining me this week on the show, new vice president of Crestview Strategy and also the founder of Bold Realities and Whose Land, Karen Rustool. Congrats on the new role. Thanks, Matea. Happy to join you again. PhD candidate and host of the Red Surgeons podcast, Riley Yesno. It's been a whole two weeks since you were last here. We've missed you. <laughs> I know. Long time. No talk. And last but not least, a new voice on the backbench, Ethan Cox, co-founder of Ricochet Media. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Let's get into it. Welcome to another day of our strike as a federal employee girly. 120,000 federal public service workers who had been walking the picket lines in front of federal government offices like this one here, they'll now be returning to work as of 9 o'clock this morning. We deeply respect the work that uh, unions do across the country uh, to stand up for good middle class jobs. That's why uh, we've ensured that the work is done at the bargaining table. The Public Service Alliance of Canada, PSAC, has reached a tentative contract agreement after almost two weeks of striking against its employer, the Government of Canada. This news came at 1.28 a.m. on May Day. Of course. (laughs) The Canada Revenue Agency, or CRA, one of the departments within PSAC, however, remains on strike with negotiations ongoing. The CRA is made up of about 35,000 workers of the over 150,000 people that were originally on strike. The tax deadline of May 1st for filing your taxes still applies, everybody, though. Big sorry and condolences to everyone who is doing their taxes at the last minute as I was. This all comes after a whirlwind of negotiations and one of the largest strikes in Canadian history. Some of the escalations in the strike included workers showing up at Toronto Pearson Airport and going to border crossings. But protests spanned all across the country. The major demands in the strike were mostly related to compensation, and workers were granted a 12.6% increase over the next four years, which was close to the 13.5% they demanded. 
Another big sticking point for workers was a desire for the language around telework to be changed to allow for more work-from-home flexibility. The opposition, of course, weighed in during the strike, and NDP leader Jagmeet Singh urged Trudeau to come to an agreement with workers. One of the biggest strikes in our, in our country's history, and where is the prime minister? The prime minister should be taking this seriously and personally. These are the workers that work for the prime minister. They work for the government. Conservative leader Pierre Poiliev, meanwhile, felt the urge to break out into song while criticizing the prime minister for not responding to the issue and going to New York instead. Start spreading the news. He's leaving today. <laughs> he wants to be a part of it. New York, New York. <laughs> Mr. Speaker. I'm the honorable member. Since singing is not allowed, whether it's good or bad, it's not allowed. There is a lot to unpack here. So let's stop our chants and start asking some questions. Ethan, I want to first turn to you because some of our listeners may not be super familiar with the ins and outs of how unions function in terms of structure and how strikes even come to be in the first place. So could you give maybe a brief description of what a union does and how we got to this point that PSAC was on strike? Typically, unions represent their members and allow them to bargain collectively. And that's that's the primary function of a union. In any workplace, the boss has disproportionate power in a one-on-one relationship with an employee. If the employee has a disagreement with the boss, the boss is going to end up winning that disagreement. So what collective bargaining is about is about letting all of the workers in a workplace bargain, as the name implies, collectively with the employer, and it puts them on a more equal footing. It allows for a sort of a, a negotiation between equals that finds a deal that hopefully is is fair for the workers and, and workable for the employer. And is there any aspect of that sort of union-employer dynamic that maybe is different for something like PSAC that's a public sector union versus unions in the private sector? Sure. There's an interesting distinction between public and private uh, sector unions. Generally, the, the public sector workforce is almost entirely unionized. And usually negotiations in the public sector are a bit more tame. So I think perhaps what's surprising in this case is that this even came to a strike. When we look at the demands of the workers, we're really, I think, by any external assessment, quite modest. They were looking for pay raises that keep up with inflation, which I think most Canadians would agree is is necessary, especially in the current context. And they were looking for some flexibility about working from home, which I think, again, most Canadians are looking for as well right now. So it's surprising to me that this even required a strike to reach such a, a sort of reasonable middle-of-the-road agreement. So this was a pretty significant significant strike just in terms of the size of how many people were involved because the public sector is such a large employer and so many employees are covered by it and it's a very heavily unionized workplace as opposed to other industries when there are strikes. Not all workplaces are necessarily unionized and it's more of a localized thing. So Karen, what sorts of disruptions in the public sector did we end up seeing? And I guess just what's your read on the tactics used by the union? Because I I saw a lot of different takes flying around about whether certain actions that they took were appropriate. I mean, my general assessment of the strike was that I saw no winners. Every day that the strike went on made it look worse for both parties. And I think in large part, 
Some of the demands from the union in particular, in my view, were quite excessive. Some would even describe it as as being uh, way over the top. Having studied law, I understand the power of negotiations, that you often have to table an excessive or extreme position in order to get to where you want to be or, or in, in and around where, where you'd like to land. But when you think about how this is getting messaged to the broader public, in particular, when the country, citizens across the country for the past year or so have been struggling to get timely service from government in key areas like immigration, passport renewal and issuance, not to mention just the large delays in getting any services on programs and services from the federal government when you're Indigenous, including simple things like clean drinking water, education, health services, key infrastructure. For me, the optics on both the demands and the timeliness of it all were just way off. To comment on the flip side, you also have Canada who shows up led by Trudeau uh, and his cabinet, who have contributed to the largest increase in public service spending historically. And so, you know, things don't just seem silly on the union side of things. The Trudeau government also is showing up to the table looking a little squirmish as well. So all in all, it's been interesting to watch. Certainly good to see them come to some sort of agreement within a relatively short timeline. Nobody would have wanted to see this go on into May. And I certainly hope that the folks at CRA can also find their footing here as well. I come from a very pro-union household. My parents are teachers. I have been young with them on the picket line since I was a child and am an active part of my unions now. You can trust that you'll always find me on a certain side of that picket line. The other thing I will say, though, that I found very interesting about this was looking at like the public's interpretation or how they were perceiving the striking. The thing that I am really concerned about is I think coming off of especially like, you know, the so-called freedom convoy, which would be the last like major protest in Ottawa, especially that folks would have in recent memory. And this like comparison people were making where they were like, so it's okay for government employees to do that, but not okay for the truckers to do that. As if once again, they were arguing, you know, for the same thing that, you know, what <laughs> the demands of, of one were not so radically different than the other. Like, there was this weird moral relativism that seemed to be like popping up. And so I'm just like also evaluating beyond the the specific nitty gritty of, of, you know, PSAC itself. And is that amount enough that they got, et cetera, et cetera, is like, what is the public general public's like feelings and education around unions, around striking and around, you know, labor grievances? It's good that we kind of opened the discussion around, well, like, aren't these employees like relatively maybe better off among other employees that there are a lot of other people who like rely on government services, who work in the private sector, who, you know, look at what these government employees are asking for. And they're like, well, that feels really excessive to me because they look at sort of the conditions of their own workplace and it's so far above and beyond what they get. But then the question that like that raises for me is like, okay, so is the problem that public sector employees are asking for too much? Or is the problem that what a lot of private sector employees have been sort of conditioned to accept is in fact like really inadequate? And so these other sorts of demands like look really excessive. And I think that when you combine sort of that like disparity between public and private sector with the fact that, as Karen mentioned, there are a lot of areas in which the public sector is really failing to deliver important services to a lot of people, it can kind of create this sense of like, okay, so 
we're all right with these people going on strike and we we have to all accept it. You know, it, it creates an interesting, I guess, dynamic in terms of how we talk about unions. I think one thing that maybe the public doesn't realize is that the public sector is divided into a couple of different unions. And so there's one called PIPs, which is specifically for professionals in the public sector. So a lot of the time when the public are thinking of like highly paid government employees making $90,000, a year, those people aren't actually members of PSAC. So PSAC members that were striking in this case, the salary range that they were being paid was forty to $65,000 a year. And some of those workers were in custodial, some of them were call center operators. So you know, on the one hand, I think it's great when when public sector employees are doing better than private sector ones because of their unions, because I think that is something that motivates improvements in working conditions in the private sector. But on the other hand, I, I also think that it's a bit of a misnomer to think that, oh, these cushy uh, government employees who have these lovely jobs, some of these people are janitors, some of them are call center operators, they're making very modest wages, and I think sometimes that gets lost in the discussion. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good note, and also, at least with the the settlement that I've seen, like, you know, details that have come out so far, it looks like the increase in wages, like the percentage by which wages are set to increase is going to be higher, I think, for people that are in that kind of like 40 to 60,000 bracket and then lower when you get into, say, the 60 to 75. Uh, but even so, as you mentioned, the people that are are working in the like six-figure public sector jobs, of which there are, you know, there are quite a lot, those are not really the people that we're talking about. We're, we're talking about the people that were on picket lines that are really making these demands in terms of like our wages are actually not adequate to support the cost of living. Do folks have thoughts about how this strike and the partial agreement that it just came to might impact future labor disputes in this country? The remote work demands that were being expressed by workers have not really been addressed in the settlement particularly. And that's something that like for me kind of raises questions about what the legacy of this strike and the settlement is going to be. The public sector, in this case, PSAC, from what I understand, is one of the largest employers or represents one of the largest labor groups in the country. And when you think about what was tabled in terms of demands for where we're at in this current state in time, at this current point in time, in terms of, you know, coming out of the pandemic, that having shifted the way we view work and productivity, it really opens things up to set the tone for other public service unions, as well as workers in the private sector in terms of how do we interpret remote working? How does that get addressed in terms of a policy and approach by an organization, by an employer? And then more importantly, from what I've seen in in terms of where they came to in a settlement on this point is how that gets worked out in practicality and application on the day-to-day. It seems as though they have left things to be quite dynamic in that there would be one kind of larger scale assertion that remote work is still an option. They've been more specific, but also less specific in terms of how that gets applied to each individual within the workplace. And so interesting to see that no one was willing to define it, so to speak, as to provide some sort of case law on it, if you will, for other labor and employment environments. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see where where other labor groups and workplaces take this. 
yeah, work from home requests, I don't think are going away anytime soon. We were told forever pre-pandemic that it wasn't possible, that we absolutely, you know, couldn't make work from home happen. And we did. And we did so successfully in, in so many cases. And so I think it's just a matter of time before most sectors catch up to what I see as the future of work, which is hybrid models wherever possible, work from home wherever possible. And we know a lot of advantages that come from that, both for the worker and for a, a company at an economic standpoint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the notion that like work from home was not possible before I always found ridiculous because I grew up in a household where my mom, who was a public sector employee for 30 years, actually for like a fairly good chunk of her career did in fact work from a home office specifically like while she had young kids and wanted to be kind of like around. That's something that she did for a long time pre-pandemic and it was like fine. (laughs) So (laughs) I found it very bizarre that now the federal government, again, that was her employer, is now trying to get people to go back into offices like just desperately because they need to save the businesses of downtown Ottawa is seemingly why they're they're doing it. I do want to go to CRA, actually, speaking of my mother, because that's where she worked for 30 years. The CRA is a separate bargaining unit. CRA employees are not covered under Treasury Board, and so as a result, they're not included in this settlement that's just been reached. So how do you folks see this ending for the CRA? I personally find it hard to imagine that that portion of the strike is going to continue on for much longer now that a settlement has been reached with the majority of workers who were on strike in the first place. I think that in this type of a situation where the bulk of PSAC members have reached an agreement and are going back to work, that really does provide a roadmap for the outstanding 35,000 CRA workers to to reach a settlement. Their, their demands were different. It's not exactly apples to apples or oranges to oranges, but I, I think it's unlikely that we're going to see that strike carry on for too long now because I think what the government's clearly signaling with the agreement that's been reached with the Treasury Board workers is an open openness to, to come to an agreement, an openness towards remote work, and, and an openness to, to raises that keep pace with inflation. So CRA workers may have to put a little bit of water into their wine, but I think there's a roadmap there for an agreement, and I would be very surprised if we didn't see that happen this week. And I just wanted to note quickly that studies have shown over and over again that when unions are successful in raising wages for their members, that has a trickle-down benefit for non-unionized workers. So when unions are successful, when they raise wages for union members, that has an effect on everybody. Everybody's wages go up as a consequence of that. So I think when we look at strikes, at labor actions like this, whether in the public sector or the private sector, I think all of us, if in, unless we're venture capitalists, unless we're in the top 0.1% of, of income earners, we should be rooting for the unions. Because whatever workplace we're in, our ability to access things like remote work, our ability to access things like raises that keep pace with inflation, that's often driven by the successes of public sector unions. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now it's time for private members' bills, the part of the show where we let our panelists set the agenda for once. 
Without further ado, I'd like to call on the Honourable Member from Spadina, Fort York, to introduce a private member's bill. Thank you, Honourable Speaker. I thought long and hard about what I would bring to private member's bill today. I thought about offering to abolish the monarchy once again in honor of King Charles's coronation or whatever that's happening or happened. But I've decided actually there are more pressing matters, which is I want sports to make sense. I <laughs> I live in downtown Toronto. And as we know, the Leafs, I guess, won the first round of the playoffs this week. And that was big news. I couldn't go to sleep all night. People were screaming and hollering and whooping. And so I called my brother, the sports guy of our family. And I was like, but this isn't for the Stanley Cup, right? And he's like, no, it's literally the first round. And I was like, what? What is happening? And so I know I'm a stereotypical gay. I just don't get it, maybe. But we should do something about making sports make more sense. And and that is my bill. You know what? I agree. I think sports should make more sense. I am doing my part to make sports make more sense to me by having a lot of friends who are men that love sports and also playing in summer soccer this, this summer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would now like to call on the honorable member from Nipissing to introduce a private member's bill. Honorable Speaker, I'd like to propose that every time the Trudeau Foundation receives a donation of any kind, that it fund a pizza party for all Canadians. Because where the Trudeaus Mm. get a pizza party, Canadians should get a pizza party. Pizza for everyone! I feel like there's been a lot of pizza party content floating around this week because I also saw a lot of tweets that were like, if I were the coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs, I would motivate them by offering them a pizza party if they won the first (laughs) round of the playoffs. (laughs) Everybody gets pizza. That's the platform here on the backbench. (laughs) And last but not least, I'd like to hear from the Honourable Member from Ville-Marie-le-Sud-Ouest-Île-des-Arts to introduce their private member's bill. Honourable Speaker, I rise today to talk about the fact that our problems with short-term rental go beyond Airbnb. Uh, This past week, the City of Montreal finally responded to access to information requests that were submitted by a lot of journalists in the wake of the the old port fire, which tragically killed seven people in a building that was operating as basically an unlicensed hotel through Airbnb. And some of what we've learned from that access to information report is that the fire department were there repeatedly over a period of 10 years assessed over and over that this building did not have sufficient fire escapes, it did not have sufficient fire alarms, and it did not meet the fire code. And somehow the fire department going over and over and over again, talking to the landlord, nothing was done about this. And then, obviously, we all know there was a fire and people died partially because of a lack of fire safety in that building. So it's easy to to blame Airbnb, to blame the platforms, and they certainly deserve blame. But we also need to look at our governments and why they're not doing more to hold these platforms accountable and and to make sure that, that where people are staying is safe. I think there's a, there's a couple of things that that raises. Not only the governments have an obligation to make sure that the accommodations that people live in are safe, but also that maybe governments should like respond to people's ATIP requests a little faster. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Taking your vitamins and keeping track of your daily nutritional needs is not exactly what I would call fun. There are famously a lot of vitamins out there that you're supposed to take. A's, B1, B12, C, E, K, zinc, potassium. How am I supposed to keep track of all this? I can't remember. Well, if you take AG1, you don't have to remember all your different vitamins because one scoop has all you need and it's just a simple habit to add into your daily routine. I take AG1 every day to make sure I'm giving my body what it needs. 
Athletic Greens has tweaked and refined their blend to make sure that you're maximizing what you're getting with AG1. It also tastes, like, pretty good. AG1's ingredients are harvested from farms around the world, and it has a subtly sweet taste with a little bit of vanilla and notes of pineapple. If you're looking for a simpler and cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com backbench. That's athleticgreens.com backbench. Check it out. Recently, data has been compiled showing that police-involved fatal encounters are rising sharply in Canada. Previously, there has not been a centralized database tracking the use of force resulting in death by police in Canada, though there have been many calls for it. I'm using this language of use of force resulting in death by police, which is deliberately ambiguous. It includes things such as fatal shootings and the use of weapons such as tasers, where a death is directly attributable to an action taken by a police officer, and also cases that are considered to be somewhat more ambiguous, where physical force was involved and it's unclear exactly what caused death. So the group Tracking Injustice has taken on this job of compiling all of this data, and they've published their numbers. Since 2000, they've counted over 700 deaths at the hands of police. 2022 had the most deaths, with the number sitting at 69. We also know that there are racial disparities when it comes to police-involved deaths. Black and Indigenous people are killed at disproportionate numbers as compared to the overall population. From cases such as the death of Miles Gray in 2015, which is currently the subject of a coroner's inquest, to the death of people like Chantal Moore, Abdirahman Abdi, Sami Yatim, just to name a few, we have so many unanswered questions. Police are cleared of any wrongdoing in the vast majority of cases with police-involved deaths. So what is going on here? Now, Ethan, I want to first turn to you because you've actually been working on an ongoing investigation into police-involved deaths. And one thing that we've been chatting about is how difficult it can be to get information from police regarding these incidents. And we see that there's a coroner's inquest going on right now into a death that occurred eight years ago. So why is it so hard to access this information? Police forces are a bit of a stone wall when it comes to releasing information, in particular about cases where there's suspected or possible misconduct. ATI uh, requests are routinely refused on the basis that that's personal and confidential information, which of course is one of the exceptions there. And so the, the general approach of police forces in this country is to say that records relative to discipline, relative to, to officer misconduct, are exempt from ATI. There have been court cases in, in a couple of different places trying to challenge that that have not been successful. So unfortunately, when we're, when we're studying policing in this country, we're at a real disadvantage data-wise. In the United States, there's much better access to data. Here, projects like Tracking Injustice, things like what we're doing at Ricochet, are, are reliant on public data, which can often be incomplete. We're reliant on, on news media reports. We're reliant on oversight reviews. We're reliant on pieces of the puzzle that don't always give us the whole picture. And so as a result, we know a lot sort of empirically about the situation of police misconduct in Canada, but we don't always have the full data, the full picture. Another reason why I think the data is so hard to collect is because, like, they don't collect it and they don't consolidate it just to, like, I think restate in a different way. Like, I, people forget that, like, police is, is like, a big blob, but actually includes, you know, the RCMP, provincial police forces, local police forces, regional ones. And so you have to expect, first of all, that all of them are keeping records of some certain standard and that then there's somebody that's going to consolidate all of that cross-jurisdictionally. And, like, there's just nobody doing that, really, other than, yes, like, 
external journalists, maybe some academic groups, etc. And I think Ethan really, really perfectly captured how difficult of a process that is to do. And so like we saw, for example, like, you know, we're talking about police deaths and police violence right now. But for example, it was one of the biggest things talked about during the murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls inquiry was that we just didn't actually even know how many people were reported missing or who had investigations closed, all of these other things, because we so poorly keep record of any sort of data related to policing and there's no real oversight requiring them to. Karen, you have a a legal background and and can maybe approach things from that angle. What exactly happens after a police-involved death? Why is it that we see, you know, sort of just such different outcomes when a police officer is involved in a civilian death versus in a situation where a civilian is possibly involved in the death of someone? I would say that there are processes in place in which the victim's families can access justice in the case where there has been a death or injury at the hands of the state. And in this in this particular case, we're, we're talking about police services. There are internal mechanisms within police services themselves that address any complaints and or actions that might be seen as out of step with the expectations or requirements of conduct of police officers. There is also mechanisms within the province to ensure that transparency and accountability are upheld. And I think that these systems, these policies are worth a review. I think we're at a critical point in time in discussing uh, public safety generally here in Canada and across North America. In my view, it's worth taking a look at the policy framework in which public safety exists. And so that legislation both at the federal and provincial levels, is in need of an update, of a revamp. There's a larger conversation happening uh, on social media and through traditional media channels where it indicates to us that citizens are losing trust in in this key public institution and that it would be worth our while to re-examine whether or not policy framework that empowers police services should probably be reviewed to see whether or not it's adequately serving the needs of our time. When you think about what police officers face on the front lines today in 2023, it's quite different than what they would have been facing 5, 10 years ago. There's been an incredible shift with the rise of mental health and addictions cases. And when you think about When someone is in crisis on the streets of, let's say, Riley, in your case, downtown Toronto, who are citizens calling to deal with that, right? Are they calling the addictions worker or are they calling 911 because the person is in crisis and they're in need of direct medical attention? So you have your paramedics, you have the police and sometimes the fire departments who are showing up to provide first response to that individual that's in crisis. Well, you know, 5, 10, 20 years ago, you know, those instances of, of crises on the streets were lesser than in number, lesser than what we face today. Police officers would have been contending with your traditional break and enter, theft, maybe an assault at a bar on a Saturday night. And so when you think about that transition in the type of cases that you face, where are the training supports, where are the policy shifts, where are the funding allocations shifting to help support that transition in order to respond to the incidents that are most prevalent today. I think it's a very good point that that mental health crises are, are a significant factor in this. I don't think they're new, but I do think perhaps we recognize them better than we did in the past. When people call 911, 
if you say somebody's having an episode, somebody's shouting on the street, if you describe the symptoms of mental illness, they're going to send the police. They're not going to send fire. They're not going to send paramedics. That's coded as a police response. And that's a problem. When we think about what police are there for, we think about investigation. We think about tracking down murderers, people that have committed crimes. We don't think about being the first response in cases of mental mental health issues. And that's really where so many of these problems come up, is the police are responding in situations where they're just not equipped to handle the problem. And all of their training is about physically restraining people, just putting people down, being aggressive, asserting their dominance in the situation. And that aggression, that assertiveness, just is the absolute worst thing when we're talking about trying to de-escalate mental health crises. I was thinking about what to say before I came on here. So once again, laying my cards on the table, I think I've said it on the show before, I'll say it again. I'm an abolitionist. It'll be no surprise to listeners who've heard me on here before that I'm not going to say that we just need to fund the police better and that that is going to be the solution. Hashtag ACAP. I just think that I know that the public is, but like there should be so much outrage about just how bad our policymaking is around public safety. Like take Ontario, for example, Doug Ford, you know, just recently announced that he is going to eliminate post-secondary requirements for police officers with the hopes of also, by the way, contradicting his own party's legislation from 2019, where they put in the legislation in the first place to have that higher level of education because they were trying to change the culture of policing with the hope being that if you had higher educated individuals in the ranks, that it would make it so that it was less about brute force and more about, I don't know, rationality or, you know, whatever they, they were saying at the time. And so he he backtracks on this now and like, this is the solution to this rise in concerns around public safety, despite, you know, every single report, every single inquest, like everything coming out, just saying like that the system that we have is failing. And so like, at the same time, it's so frustrating when I see, like, I can think of three community volunteer-based shoestring budgets run groups who do so much intervention work, who have helped, you know, mediate so many potential conflicts and crises, and they do it on all volunteer hours, yeah, no money, and, like, they're not seeing this sort of, like, advance in any sort of initiative and policymaking. So, again, feelings about the police aside, it's just why are our policymakers so uncreative? How can we expand our scope of what we understand is possible for public safety? I would push back on Riley and say that this is a policy solution, right? Like, they are shifting the requirement of having post-secondary to go into policing, I don't necessarily think that it's a terrible thing. It all comes down to, in application, what does this look like? And so if your recruitment strategy is, and from what I read, the people going into policing are now no longer in their early 20s as my uncles did when, when they went into policing in the 80s and 90s. We're looking at an older population that's stepping into that into public safety as a career. I read the statistics this morning. It's predominantly folks in their late 20s and early 30s, who have for five, seven, 10 years served in some sort of public safety role. So we're looking at maybe some individuals who would have worked in correctional services who have been trained there, some folks who would have served in frontline security services for public safety companies, uh, serving the public, you know, writ large. And who knows, there may be, you know, some folks who who do have a, a mental health background, who have given the challenges are rising up and putting themselves down to, to serve as police officers. It'll be interesting to see. But we also can't discredit the role of police colleges in training these individuals. 
The training takes place over several weeks, over several months. It's ongoing. They are bringing in experts, leaders in the public safety and policing sector to train these rookies to best serve the public to to face the challenges of our time. So it is a policy solution. I don't know that having a higher education leads to less brute force, to be to be quite frank. I think it's a question of what your your selection practice is in, in choosing those individuals. I know people with higher education who can't control their emotions. Do I want them on the front line? Absolutely not. So it really is about personal suitability. But I think the thing that, that is most important in all of this, which I love about what's happening here with us here today, is that we're talking about it. And up until maybe a couple of years ago, people weren't really having, the general public wasn't really having deep discussions about the state of public safety. To clarify, yes, for sure, it's a policy solution. I just think it's a bad one. What do we do instead? Like, I think there are a ton of things. One of the things I would like to see, like more of a, a culture shift towards and like all levels of government, you know, trying to advocate for is like harm reduction based models of community intervention and community safety. Police are just one pillar of this. Like a lot of our ways that we engage with the public and people that we perceive as as causing a threat or doing harm or any of these things is strictly punitive or at least like very heavily punitive. And so um, transforming all of our communities to be more compassionate to meeting people where we're at, having more education around, you know, the benefits of safe injection sites, you know, like I think one of the best things I thought the government did in like recent decades was making naloxone kits and training free for everybody at every shoppers. Like there are things like that that I think are, are part of a harm reduction ethic and framework that totally benefit community safety. I think when we talk about policing in this country, perhaps the single biggest problem we have is that there is often a chasm between reality and public perception. I think most people in this country, if you were to go up to them on the street and ask, would, would say that they think that, that police misconduct is rare. It's a case of, of bad apples. And they would say that, that they feel that, that there are strong oversight bodies that can address situations where there is misconduct. And unfortunately, the, the truth is often that nothing could be further from the truth. This is an issue where the more that you stare at it, the more horrified you become. And I find that to be universally true. I've spent the past year as part of this Missioner Deacon investigative project speaking to academics who study policing across the country. And I found this to be uniformly the case when it comes to them. And I've also had some experience with those oversight bodies. You know, when it comes to the RCMP, there's an oversight body called the Civilian Review and Complaints Commission. And I've had opportunity to make a, a complaint to them because uh, in 2020 in Wet'suwet'en Territory, uh, Jerome Turner, a journalist on assignment for us, was held at gunpoint and detained for, for eight hours by the RCMP. So we, we filed a complaint. And what I found out about the CRCC is that they're their determinations are advisory in nature, and the RCMP can simply stonewall them by not providing answers. And so a lot of complaints to the CRCC end up getting stonewalled out because the RCMP are not responsive to their own oversight body, which has no ability to compel them to do anything. So, you know, again, I think what's important is that if you study this issue, if you go and you do the research, you will see that there is a crisis in this country. There is a sky-high number of people who are having seriously bad outcomes from interactions with police. In 2022, 69 people died in interactions with police. A large other number were, were injured, had bad interactions with police. And the, the, the number, you know, in, in Toronto alone, 
only one out of 65 officers involved in cases where somebody died ended up being criminally convicted. So we have a crisis where police are so often acting inappropriately. And part of the reason for that is because there aren't really effective consequences. When there are no consequences for bad behavior, that emboldens people's worst instincts. That emboldens the worst members of, of the police force to, to take actions that they wouldn't if there, were, if there were consequences. And so, to me, this is an issue that I think it's impossible if you stare at it not to say we need significant change. The way policing is happening in this country does not work. It is disproportionately hard on black and indigenous people who are three times as likely to be involved in a, a police-involved shooting. But for all of us, for all, all Canadians, the current system doesn't work and it gets worse every year. There isn't effective oversight. There aren't consequences for police officers that do abuse the system, that do abuse their power and commit misconduct. And we need systemic change. To the point that Ethan made about the RCMP and, and the oversight body over there, it's, just, it's varied and it's inconsistent from province to province. There are huge issues in terms of who holds power and how it gets applied. I'm a fan of a, a, a local authority over police services, but nonetheless, I think the policy framework should be somewhat consistent across the board. It shouldn't just be a bit of a grab bag, depending on whether you're the RCMP or whether you're the Toronto Police or whether you're the OPP, in terms of how you're functioning to uphold that transparency and accountability in the public safety framework. So a little bit of a spew there on the policy side of things, but as you can see, tons of opportunity here to create that consistency, to correct the course, but most importantly, to improve the way public service gets uh, delivered to citizens, which is ultimately what the issue should be about. This is what we hear so often from politicians, that there are avenues. There are, there are avenues for complaints. You just have to file a complaint. I talked a little bit about my experience with the CRCC and how futile that was. I think we have to recognize that something around 98% of those complaints are dismissed. So one of two things is true here. Either the police are almost always right, and when citizens file complaints, invariably those complaints are, are not valid, or maybe the processes that we have to review those complaints are not doing a fulsome job. And I think, you know, when we talk about this, so much of the problem is a lack of democratic accountability. And that, I think, is the problem in a nutshell. I want to tie this episode in a nice bow, just because, Ethan, we're talking about this lack of consequences for police officers that abuse their power. One reason, in my opinion, why we see such a lack of consequences is because police forces are actually some of the most heavily unionized workplaces that we have in our country. And I have such mixed feelings about it because on the one hand, like it is an incredibly powerful example of the strength of unions and their capacity to organize and to achieve things for their members. Unfortunately, I think one of the things that police unions have achieved for their members is a strong immunity from facing any sort of consequences uh, in situations where someone dies or is injured at the hands of police. You know, obviously people just should not be dying at the hands of police officers nearly as often as they are. But if it does happen, it seems incredibly bleak that so few 
families or so few victims are ever able to to seek justice for what's happened to them. Well, I think that's an excellent point. Um, and police unions are, are a problem and are an impediment to progress. But I would say that if all it took was a union for public sector employees to get what they want out of the government, our nurses would be much better paid. There is a prevailing political climate. There is a willingness politically to give police forces what they want that doesn't exist for other types of public sector workers. So, you know, police police unions are a bit different than other types of unions. They're typically not in larger labor federations. But again, a, a union advocates for its members. And so I don't think there's any problem with a police union that advocates for its members. I think the problem is with governments that are absolute and complete pushovers. You know, and just as a quick aside, there's an issue we have in Canada, which is that municipally, many municipalities don't actually have control over their police forces. In provinces like Quebec, British Columbia, the province is actually in charge of municipal police forces. And so an elected mayor and council can't actually do anything. They can't can't really cut the police budget. They can't fire the police chief. They can't do anything about the police force without the say-so of the province. And so that creates a situation where there's a complete lack of democratic accountability. Because if there's something going wrong with the police force in X municipality, even if all the citizens of that municipality are up in arms about it, it's not going to be enough to swing an election at the provincial level. So the provincial government is risking nothing by not listening to calls for accountability from the police force. And the municipal leaders that are accountable to that population that may be trying to do something about it, they don't have the power to do anything. You're right. Like, I think it is probably good when unions are able to advocate for their members. Bad if governments are just like completely unable or unwilling to push back on demands that end up affecting the rest of the public negatively in this case. Another thing, though, is it's like, well, why do the members of the union want to avoid accountability so goddamn badly? I know and have been proximate to enough also policing both in my personal life and online to see that like, you know, the whole idea of the thin blue line that like there is this belief that they are the thin blue line that holds us between order and chaos. And so it's very easy if that is your belief system to be like, well, you know, I holding me accountable is way worse than the chaos that would ensue from me doing my job. Like there's a lot of like a, a huge cultural belief system within massive sections of policing that I think reinforce a lack of accountability. And so, yeah, that might be my explanation or one explanation of how that persists and that I don't know that, yeah, union organizing uh, addresses that <laughs> in any real way for them. All right, let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when hopefully April showers will have brought May flowers. If you've been following along with what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you've been watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at candleland.com, and we're also on Twitter at backbenchcast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me on Twitter at Matea Roach. You can also, uh, starting on May 8th, find me on television playing uh, that game show that I was on again. uh, Jeopardy Masters airing on ABC starting May 8th. Riley, where can people find you? People can find me on Twitter at Riley Yesno, maybe, or on my website, RileyYesno.com. Karen, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Karen Rustool. And Ethan, where can people find you? 
Until Elon Musk burns the whole thing down, you can find me on Twitter at EthanCoxMTL. And uh, also, uh, I got to give in a plug for uh, Ricochet.media, our uh, nonprofit media outlet. I am continuing my tour of historic Southern California hotels this week and recorded today's episode from the Culver Hotel, which is, as you might reasonably guess, located in Culver City. Famously, this hotel hosted over 100 actors who played munchkins in 1939's The Wizard of Oz, which was actually shot in part basically across the street from here. Supposedly, the munchkins had some crazy parties, so anytime I go to the hotel out bar, I always am like, the munchkins were drinking here. This episode was produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Noor Azria and Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ejofo. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. We recently released a part of our latest episode that didn't quite make the final cut, but was an important conversation that we wanted to share with our supporters. If you support us, you'll have access to it. If you don't support us and you want to take a listen, consider becoming a supporter. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening.